So this is now the third and final part of our discussion of Andrea Wolf's Humboldt biography, The Invention of Nature. Actually, Cody, I wanted to, this is something I wanted to do since the first one, but I forgot. So I wanted to ask Cody, how are you doing? Or to put it in the way that Humboldt said when he was in the Amazon rainforest writing back to people in Berlin. And you, dearest, how is your monotonous life? <laughs> Oh man, um, probably not monotonous enough recently. Actually, um, <laughs> I uh, Haley and I have been making weekly trips into London recently, uh, and last Friday we were bartending this event at this opening of an art gallery. Uh, and you so were bartending, we, yeah. So okay. we were putting on we were putting on uh, a little cocktail uh, exhibition along with the art exhibition as well. And so I could probably honestly be spending a little <laughs> bit more time on the shit that I'm actually supposed to be doing and not jumping off to do Plus that. Plus it doesn't even fit. Damn it. <laughs> anyway, I, uh, <laughs> I just wanted to get that quote in at least once. Yeah, it's a good one. Uh, okay, I guess as usual, we can start with the summary of the chapters. Chapter 20, Revolutions Across Europe. Humboldt publishes parts three to five of Cosmos. On the 6th of May, 1859, aged 89, Humboldt dies. His funeral procession is attended by tens of thousands. Sixteen days before his own death, Darwin rereads personal narrative. Chapter 21. For reasons not entirely clear to me, this chapter provides 15 pages of the life story of George Perkins Marsh, a man who was mentioned only once and only in passing before this chapter. Chapter 22. 17 pages about Ernst Haeckel, a man not mentioned even once in the entire book outside of this chapter. Chapter 23. A chapter on John. Do you know how to pronounce his name? Muir, no. I have no idea. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, that guy. And then, yeah, the epilogue just kind of closes off the book, I guess. It's two and a half pages, so I didn't write a proper summary for that. Um, but maybe we can start with what we discussed slightly before recording and also what's quite Let's talk obvious. Uh, sorry, I wanted to yeah. talk first about the the... <laughs> You know, my, my, my chapter summary usually was very neutral describing the events of the <laughs> book. And in this case, it got slightly frustrated throughout. Um, I think we don't need to spend too much time on this, but uh, yeah, as we, we both, uh, you know, said before we started recording, we were very surprised by what this last, this fifth part was. I guess we, oh, at least I expected some sort of, well, something about Humboldt and then. I mean, for me, it was just this confusion of okay, first going like, okay, who is this Perkins Marsh guy and why am I reading about him? I don't know if he's more, maybe he's more famous in America or in, you know, for people who do other things than I do, but I had no idea who he was. So I kept going like, what, what, what is this? I mean, we had a chapter before about Bolivar, but that made sense, right? Because it fit into it. But yeah, I found these three chapters, 21 to 23, a bit jarring and not in entirely sure why they were there yeah so i found nothing of interest whatsoever in them <laughs> and uh and so okay so having said that trying to be sympathetic to uh wolf's intentions here it was sort of like okay maybe that was her way of contextualizing his legacy mm -hmm. and um saying well okay here are other 
works that evidently were monumental in their own time and in their own areas and that sort of stuff. They're not ones that are of particular note to me. And maybe that's just on me. Maybe I, I should, I would be better off uh, having intimate familiarity with, with the people and work she was talking about. Um, but I could see that this would be, uh, you know, a kind of means of denouement towards like, okay, here is what Humboldt led to in the yeah. people who read his work uh, afterwards. That being said, for me personally, there was absolutely zero emotional resonance <laughs> with, with how that uh, happened. Um, I could see that's how she was trying to go for it. Didn't work for me. Um, no. Yeah, I was, I uh, I didn't understand. That was, it was, let's just say this. It was not the payoff that I was looking for after 300 pages of humble biography to, to get into things that just frankly weren't. There were at most tangentially related yeah. people who had read his work, claimed to have liked it, and then did something more or less entirely different. Yeah, I think. I mean, so there's. I think one thing that's slightly confusing is just exactly the the framing of what the book is, because, you know, the title is the invention of nature. It's not Alexander von Humboldt. So the book, in a you know, from that perspective, I think it makes sense to then talk about how he led to this more environmental movement and a lot of things that happened. Uh, or are still very relevant today. But, and uh, this is the other thing. Andrea Wolf is not a biographer. She's a historian. So from that perspective, I think, you know, I already had that thought when there was a chapter on Bolivar. I thought, I mean, fair enough. They knew each other. He influenced them. But why exactly is the entire chapter on Bolivar? But I think it's because, yeah, she's a historian, not a scientist or a biographer. So I think, but I always looked at this and it's always sold as a biography of Humboldt, which I guess, I mean, it is to like, 85% or whatever. But I mean, for me, it just also this John Moore, whatever guy, <laughs> he seemed really annoying. Um, <laughs> at the end, I thought, like, oh God, I'm glad I didn't have, have to talk to him. Um, I mean, Heckler, I, I knew of just because I know that he, you know, made these beautiful illustrations and drawings. But yeah, anyway, I just wanted to, it, it felt to me like, which is slightly weird to skip over the last three chapters of the book without mentioning them at least briefly. Oh, it was, yeah, it was extremely unsatisfying to 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 get there and be like, I don't really need or want any of this information. Can I just be done now, please? Like he died, and evidently there's nothing more that he's going to do. So I kind of just like, uh, yeah. but no, I, you know, one of the things I think this brought back to me. Was it maybe remember just how much I do not like biographies in general? Really? Okay. Um, and so I'd actually go so far as to say that my favorite of all genre of books is autobiography. Mm -hmm. And my least favorite in the general case is biography. And there's something about... So what I like about autobiography is that what I really want to know is I want to know about how someone saw the world. I want to I want to know the, what the world looked like according to them, no matter how kind of fucked up and uh, totally off base and, and everything like that. I just I just want to know how they saw things and how how that experience uh, looked like to them. The the facts of the matter in terms of the plot summary. This is you know how it actually happened and that sort of stuff. That's supremely less interesting to me uh, as just a series of, you know, here's here's the things that happened in the order that they happened in and kind of washed of the significance to the person to whom they happened. And so, uh, uh, yeah, I think a lot of the, the things that didn't resonate with me emotionally uh, in this book are, 
you know, sort of things along that lines. Ultimately, I felt like I got to know Andrea Wolf's worldview a lot more than I got to know Humboldt's worldview. For example, you know, I talked in, I think, in the first section about how she only quotes Humboldt half a line at a time. And that doesn't tell me about Humboldt. That tells me which sentences like Humboldt wrote that she looked at me like, yeah, that's a fucking great one. Yeah. Um, and so I know that she agrees with those kinds of things and like finds those representative worldview she po- finds compelling. And uh, so I have, I'm pretty comfortable with her take on that. And I feel like I haven't quite penetrated into the mind of, of, of Humboldt through that. And I, I do think that's largely a function of the nature of, of, of biography, in my opinion. Uh, and certainly, uh, I, I don't think Wolf's treatment did anything to overcome that. Okay, yeah, that's fair. Have you, uh, just out of curiosity, have you read the Steve Jobs biography by Walter Isaacson? I've not read any Walter Isaacson. Okay. Because that one, I think, I was, I think that is one where maybe because Jobs was, was still alive when it was written, uh, or at least parts of it were written. That I think is one of those where you really feel like you get to know what Steve Jobs thought and felt and how he viewed the world really. And that is one that really stands out to me as one that I thought was really interesting, maybe precisely for those reasons that you mentioned. Uh, so it seems then that, um, judging by what you just said, we should have not read The Invention of Nature, but we should have read Personal Narrative by Hornwood. <laughs> seems uh, like that would have been a more fitting book. That- that's definitely that's definitely um it's wet my appetite for that it's made yeah, me same. want to go check that out and same with same with cosmos but but no i you know i wouldn't be surprised about the the walter isaacson thing uh and that's you know i definitely uh should get around reading at least one of his biographies i wouldn't be surprised if he if he did a great job about that uh i think he's definitely one of those singular figures in his genre that does it so well wouldn't be surprised if he transcends that. But I think uh, biography as a um, genre does suffer from that, uh, you know, kind of. But here's the thing, is that I really love group biographies. Um, Hmm. And so the thing that I like about group biographies, and the reason that I think my favorite chapters in this book were um, the Goethe and the the Darwin one, uh, is because then you have juxtaposition. You have here is a social situation. Here is a here is a milieu. Here's a context. I'm going to tell you about the context, and I'm going to show you the inter the interlocking you know sort of experience of you know uh, n is greater than or equal to two people who engaged in that context and did something with it and that sort of thing. And then you can start to in that comparative method, which not incidentally is what Humboldt venerated so much in his in his travels, trying to compare, you know, South America and Russia, that sort of stuff. So I'm a big fan of anything that takes, you know, purports to take a comparative method there. Um, But uh, for that reason, I I generally really enjoy uh, group biographies. Do you have one or two examples? I'm not sure. I don't know whether I've read something like that or maybe. Yeah. Do you have some that you really liked? Two of my favorite nonfiction depends on which um, version of Cody's favorite nonfiction books we're we're talking about. But there's one version of Cody's favorite nonfiction books okay. uh, where my two favorite uh, books of all time are uh, by uh, Louis Manant, who we talked about last time. Yeah, um, and that's the Metaphysical Club is the group biography to end all group biographies. Um, William James, uh, uh, Charles Sanders Peirce, Oliver Wendell Holmes, and John Dewey, the American pragmatists. Then a group biography of very different sort, Cold War intellectuals, um, art and thought in the Cold War, uh, called The Free World. And that just came out this year. And that's uh, uh, also much by more. Louis Manon. 
Yep. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay, yeah, uh, I mean, that's, your interview yeah. with him made me want to read them, but then I saw how long they are, and I thought, oh, God. <laughs> they're, For the book club, no, they're, they're endeavors. Like, that, that really, you're not just going to sit down and, and, and leaf through them, and I think that's part of the reason why they're so impactful, is you dedicate so much goddamn time to reading them, that, like, you know, yeah, just definitely. like... You're a different person. Like you've you've gone through years of your life after you finished reading it. So you, of course, have changed along the way. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Yeah. Then I'm gonna. That's. I actually. Well, actually, I genuinely want to consider doing one of them for the book club. So I just have to find someone now who wants to read through thousand pages of whatever those books are. So yeah. 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 Anyway, um, Cosmos. So it seemed like you had something. That's something you really wanted to talk about. Do you want to take the lead on that? I one? just want to talk about Cosmos because it's it seemed like such a cool project, such a cool endeavor. Uh, I'm so sympathetic to what he was going for. So um, I think Wolf did a very good job of summarizing some of his, what he was trying to do. And obviously she's read that book and I haven't. So maybe I'll just read a passage or two of her, her summary so people can get a feel for 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 what this was. Her, this is her description of, of Cosmos. Cosmos was unlike any previous book about nature. Humboldt took his readers on a journey from outer space to Earth and then from the surface of the planet into its inner core. He discussed comets, the Milky Way and the solar system, as well as terrestrial magnetism, volcanoes, and the snow line of mountains. He wrote about the migration of the human species, about plants, animals, and the microscopic organisms that live in stagnant water or on the weathered surface of rocks. Where others insisted that nature was stripped of its magic as humankind penetrated into its deepest secrets, Humboldt believed exactly the opposite. How could this be, Humboldt asked, in a world in which the colored rays of an aurora unite in a quivering sea flame, creating a sight so otherworldly, the splendor of which no description can reach? Uh, knowledge, he said, could never kill the creative force of imagination. Instead, it brought excitement, astonishment, and wondrousness. The most important part of Cosmos was the long introduction of almost 100 pages. Here, Humboldt spelled out his vision of a world that pulsated with life. Everything was part of this never-ending activity of the animated forces, Humboldt wrote. Nature was a living whole where organisms were bound together in a net-like intricate fabric. Um, and so, yeah, I think that, that that's kind of... That's the way she portrays Cosmos, is that it's essentially Humboldt's theory of everything, and not everything in an abstract sense, as in some you know little equation that gives you all of the, the answers if you plug in the right things, but the actual concrete, tangible manifestation of things that Humboldt encountered uh, from the you know largest solar system level to the smallest microscopic level, uh, and to connect that in... The theme that she's been talking about since page one, which is his his concept of the interconnectedness of, of nature and all that sort of stuff. So, yeah, it sounds like an amazing book and that uh, there's a ton of cool stuff in there. Yeah, I mean, what I find interesting about the book is that it's, um, you know, I also haven't read it, um, although there's one, I read the first abstract a paragraph, and uh, there's one word that caught my attention there that we can talk about in a second, but what I find just interesting is that he really, I mean, like one, one thing I kept wondering when, while reading The Invention of Nature, is just, is Humboldt really a scientist or not? Because in some extent, it seems to me he's, he was an adventurer and a science communicator. That to me seems to be mostly what he was about. And one thing that really struck me, especially about the last parts of, the last parts of Cosmos is just how much 
Humboldt was a writer and an organizer of other people's knowledge in the sense of organ, like, I mean, literally asking them, like, put in the numbers here. <laughs> like, <laughs> I need the figures. Like, what's the precise stuff here? And that he was just corresponding with, with, uh, I don't know, hundreds of people or however many, uh, throughout the years to really, it, it seemed almost like it's, maybe not in the beginning, but definitely at the end, it seemed like more of a group effort than, you know, orchestrated by him rather than, yeah, I mean, like not, yeah, all of these things were stuff that he obviously had never done any experiments on or any of those things, right? Like physics or cosmology or whatever. Um, so I just found it really interesting how maybe coupled with his public lectures, he really seemed to just try to present to the world the knowledge of science that exists at the time. And so, Ben, how, how do you feel about that? What does it make you feel about humble? You make, like the way you kind of say it now. It, it sounds like the subtext is that you, you feel like that makes him less of a scientist. So, yeah, I mean, for me, the main question is whether he even really. I guess, like one thing I kept asking throughout this book, and also because Humboldt himself, or at least through yeah, he himself and Andrea Wolf also seemed to have this. I guess I just kept asking myself, like, what does it actually mean to do science? Because in a way, going out to the Amazon forest, you know, doing lots of measurements, which is cool, collecting lots of stuff, it's great. And then saying everything's connected. That's not, is that science? I don't know. It seemed to me <laughs> that there's this, like, I know he had specific things. Yeah. I, like the one thing was the, 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 the two things that really, in some of the other things I also read, that really stood out is that he, uh, I, I can't, I've forgotten what one of those geological words are, but something like and the other thing was just this idea that that biodiversity depends on geography or whatever. Uh, if you say it like that, it sounds very trivial, but it sounds everyone seems to agree that that was really something that he advanced. But yeah, I, I'm still kind of struggling to think of that really as science. I'm not, I mean, I'm not saying it's not a contribution, right? I'm not saying, and I'm not saying he didn't know a lot. It just seems it was more a bit of. I don't know. It, it strikes me. That's what I meant. Like as a modern com science communicator, someone who really knows things, but doesn't actually advance knowledge directly, but more by transmitting it to other people who do science or to the general public who might be interested in it. Um, so I think, you know, also his measurements seem to be very valuable to many scientists, but yeah, I mean, one thing, maybe, maybe I can, I can just quote this now then from this one paper that I read. So I basically had a, I had a brief look at kind of who is citing this biography just to see kind of, you know, whether there's anything, anything interesting there. And there, there's, there were a few articles here and one is called, uh, biodiversity research data without theory, theory without data by Rillig et al. And Rillig is, seems to be like one of those really, uh, influential, uh, what is he? Uh, scientist. I don't know exactly what he does. Um, ecologist or something like that. And, they, this is like a commentary article, and I'm just going to read the first paragraph of that because I think it maybe captures this kind of tension between different kinds of science that I'm thinking about. So the quote is, meet two famous researchers from the early days of biodiversity research, Charles Darwin and Alexander von Humboldt. Darwin developed a powerful theory using a limited amount of data by modern standards. Humboldt, in contrast, compiled a cosmos of data without developing a major theory, although some of Humboldt's observations on latitudinal biodiversity gradients were later used to develop theory. 
this tension between data and theory still persists still persists today and is perhaps becoming more acute and i think for me what i really associate with science is maybe more the darwin kind of idea the actual going okay we have all these things how do they relate and it seems to me that humboldt was much well only really for those five years when he went on his first travel, right? And for the last year. So he had basically only had six years in which he even collected stuff. So, yeah, I don't know. I, I This book has really made me think about like what it means to do science, even though maybe that's a kind of irrelevant, slightly, yeah, I, maybe the question's not that important, but it's really made me wonder what it means to do science and whether Humboldt even fits into that category. Well, I actually think this is this is a hugely deep question and one worth considering and, and certainly one that I ask myself uh, a lot. And I think one of the lens that I think uh, about this question through is the lens of professionalization. So when you say the word scientist or any, any of the related terms, I think you're referring to two different but interrelated things. One is the concept of, you know, a truth seeker who is looking to use an empirical method to better understand the world um, through some sort of data collection and interpretation of, of what those data mean. And then the other is that you are employed as a scientist doing science that is your living and that sort of thing. And, ide and ideally, you'd have these two things come together and be, you know, working towards the same thing. However, one of the big problems of being a scientist in the modern world is that we're seeing more and more divergence between those two versions of what it is to be a scientist, right? And so today's highly professionalized discipline uh, is not just about, quote, truth-seeking and whatever you want. You've got all sorts of stuff from, you know, public, uh, publish and perish culture uh, to, you know, uh, everything uh, through peer review and what you have to do for free, this sort of stuff, the mechanisms of science become, become uh, much more important. So in the context of Humboldt, here's something that uh, Wolf had to say that I, I think is, is helpful for thinking about this. And so, uh, so this is quoting from her. And so in 1834, the very year that the term scientist was first coined, heralding the beginning of the professionalization of the sciences and the hardening lines between the different scientific disciplines, Humboldt began a book that did exactly the opposite, Cosmos. Uh, as science moved away from nature into laboratories and universities, separating itself off in distinct disciplines, Humboldt created a work that brought together all that professional science was trying to keep apart. Um, and I think I agree with a lot of your characterization of, of what you are uh, saying and your suspicions and, and, and questions, that sort of stuff. But I think another useful way to look through it as is that what Humboldt was doing in a very meaningful and, and profound way was this amateur in the etymological sense of doing something because you love it amateur uh scientist of going out there and just trying to figure things out and i think there was a lot of on the ground science that he was doing like little measurements and this and that which we don't fully understand from the wolf biography what yeah. the nature of that was i probably wouldn't personally care anyway <laughs> yeah. um but uh and I'm, I'm, I'm glad to have been spared the details of that uh i so i suspect there was in that sense, lots of stuff uh, that, that was coming out of it um, and, and, and everything. But to have this concept of a scientist in this really pure form, someone who just wants to uh, find stuff out and then, you know, further elucidate it in writing and that sort of stuff. 
and this, uh, as opposed to this highly professionalized, this is what I do, this is how my peers judge me, uh, I think Humboldt was a really cool version of that, uh, you know, we can call it amateur scientist. But, I mean, so um, I don't actually mean that much the distinction between, like, being an academic and being a scientist. I mean, what I mean more is that, for me, a scientist is someone who, I mean, you could say creates knowledge, but I think for me, the more interesting thing, maybe this is actually more a thing of the time, is to dis, um, make the word simpler by explaining underlying principles of how things work and why things are certain ways. Um, maybe actually that's just what I was thinking. Maybe at Humboldt's time, maybe the, I don't know how much data there was in that sense. Maybe actually, you know, getting data, you know, having more information in that sense is actually uh, much more valuable than it is today when we, I feel often, need the frameworks almost more that can reduce information almost but what i mean more is that just he he had i mean when we think of this yeah as i said he had basically six years in which he really collected data it seems to me those five years in south america and the one year in russia when he really did the, all those measurements that to me is pretty uh uncontroversial him being a scientist i don't think there's anything really to say about that i think yeah he collected valuable measurements found species etc um it's very much a you know data collection science and i but yeah but it's it's definitely science but i think what i mean more is that yeah it seemed to me more that for the for the rest of his life he was for every you know everything after those apart from those six years he spent it communicating it to others sometimes fellow scientists um but a large part of it seemed to be entertaining the king um, writing cosmos or talking, giving the public lectures and all these kind of things. And, you know, I'm not, I'm not shitting on that. <laughs> um, it, it seems to me like he was maybe like a revolutionary in science communication, like one of the first ones to really do that on a grand scale. Um, it just seems to me that, yeah, I just don't know like what it's, I mean, yeah, as I said earlier, like going somewhere and saying everything is connected is not, it's not a theory. <laughs> It it sounds like maybe he was what he really pioneered was the Steven Pinker Jared Diamond uh, yeah. template for 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 having a successful academic career where you know you have some whatever you're initially going to do and you know I think for both of them they did have you know really significant early career findings and everything and they're like mm -hmm. great yeah. The rest of it is going to be me going out there talking about it and getting credit for now just like the general notion of this field of science rather than yeah. any any of my specific findings. And I mean, if, if you do that very well, then great. I have no problem with that. It's just I find it slightly weird that, yeah, I mean, so that's that's one part. But the other part that I have slight problems about the whole science question is that, um, actually, wait, sorry, this is from notes from last episode give me a second well while you're looking at that what i will say is that in accord with with your concern here the one that you've already expressed is that actual scientists love to 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 take shots at jared shyman that jared diamond and steve Pinker <laughs> and that sort of stuff so uh, certainly the uh you're not the first person to to question the nature of this template, whether it's really a scientist. The other thing is that, as Wolf notes, Darwin's so much more fucking famous than than Humboldt. She calls him, you know, the lost hero of science, all but forgotten in the English-speaking world and everything like that. Uh, so, 
maybe you're right. Like everyone does attribute the the the, the sort of archetypal concept of scientist to Darwin, and no one really feels, no one really looks on like, yeah, there's like our there's our science guy right there. Um, and I think that that's probably that's probably true. So one thing that that I wrote down for last time, which and there was this point that kind of annoyed me, is that it seems to me. And again, I'm not entirely sure whether this is Humboldt or Wolf. I don't know, or both, or whatever. Um, but one thing that seemed to me is that they, there seems to be this confusion, it seems to me, between complexity or the completeness of what you're describing on the one hand and the precision precision with which you're doing it. So there was this one part where they, or I think two or three times in the book, they criticized fairly explicitly Newton's kind of way of, you know, you have your formulas that can describe how things relate to each other, that kind of stuff. And they say, like, no, no, you should, you know, go out there, everything should relate to each other, etc. But that to me is a completely false dichotomy, because number one, if you have a formula that can describe all bodies in the known universe, that's more complete than you going to, to a rainforest and saying, oh, look, the animals are related to the stones. It's like, you know, that's that's far less, that's much more narrow than having a theory of how objects move in the universe and attract each other through gravity. So I think that's just, I just don't see how that's in any way right. And it seems to me more that whereas someone like Newton created these precise predictions, Humboldt just created, I wouldn't even call them theories. I think that's what in one of these um uh, one of these articles I read, they just say he provided a framework for how to think about these things and that you should not ignore certain things, but that it's important to bear all in mind. And that's an important reminder, but I, it's not a theory or yeah, even science, in, in my opinion. Well, I think, I think your point is well taken in that I think my takeaway from this Humboldt biography was that Humboldt, cool guy. But I wouldn't go so far as to say, like, well, you know, here's Darwin, here's Newton, here's my man Humboldt, <laughs> yeah. you know. Uh, so I, I, I definitely, I, I think you're, you, you're probably correct about that, and it probably goes to some, some level of explaining why Wolf felt it was necessary to resurrect the lost hero of science, uh, and, and why people were more comfortable forgetting about him. How, especially like, there's, it's cognitively it's a lot easier to look at darwin and say boom evolution and you know newton mechanics so that's like this and very easy and, <laughs> and pretty much yeah like all this insane shit uh but but to have the point is to have something very concrete to attach something and the nature of doing humboldt's endeavor is that it doesn't lend itself well to summary and if you do summarize it and you say everything in nature is interconnected, you sound like a dipshit. Uh, and so that's something about the nature of the project. And so I think if we really wanted to take this line of criticism seriously, it seems to me like it would be important to separate out the nature of the project itself from how easy it is to talk about in and summarize in retrospect. So I think that's one one asterisk that I'd put on your otherwise pretty sound analysis. Yeah, I also make I actually wanted to make kind of two uh, caveats. Also, one was that, and I'd add to that one person in who's definitely a scientist, and no one would doubt it, but who maybe falls into that category and has talked about it himself as Freeman Dyson or was Freeman Dyson, 
who uh, was a I think mainly a mathematician actually, but worked as a theoretical physicist and helped or worked with uh, Feynman, for example, on most of Feynman's famous stuff. But Freeman Dyson also said like he doesn't fit into the academic system because he actually never did a PhD. That's the first impressive thing uh, in modern science. Uh, but he uh, didn't like doing big projects. He liked working on this thing, then on that thing, then on another thing. And he also said like, and I don't think he, Freeman Dyson ever won a Nobel Prize, for example, even though his contributions were probably as much. Yeah, but his couldn't be summarized in one sentence. Uh, that's one. And the other, the last point for me on this topic is <clears throat> that um, there is this famous quote that um, seems to be attributed to many people, uh, which is all science is either physics or stamp collecting. And of course, in some sense, that's meant as a derogatory description of other people's research. But, Depends on how you feel about stamp collecting. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But I think it's if I think if you look at through this dichotomy, it's very clear that Humboldt was a stamp collector. He, I mean, he collected thousands of stamps uh, in South America. So I think that's maybe one way also to think about what he did. Um, so here, here's another here's another thing I want to add into that as as kind of like a, maybe a you know, my response to the the physics versus stamp collecting thing. And that's that this is something we talked about in the Darwin chapter is that both of those guys went on these big ambitious trips to South America. And both of them, as we've just noted, got very different things out of them. Humboldt got this big picture thing where he came back and he spent, you know, the next 30 years trying to describe what he saw. And Darwin had this, you know, really big, beautiful idea. But Darwin had an advantage that Humboldt didn't, which is that he had Humboldt's trip uh, and he had his personal narrative. And so this, this is this is how I summarized it in the, the Darwin chapter is that Darwin brought along with him Humboldt's observations. So when he was seeing something, he wasn't just, okay, here's my visual perception of it. Uh, and, you know, here's what I'm getting out of it. But he simultaneously, because he was so intimately familiar with, you know, Humboldt's fucking 30 volume personal narrative of everything he saw, he had that same uh, lens with which to see it through, which I think it would be difficult to under it would be difficult to overestimate how uh, impactful and how useful that additional piece of theoretical conceptual yeah. baggage is. And um, so I think it's a little bit unfair to say, well, Humboldt just, you know, wasn't as good of a, a theorist in that sort of stuff. I think that, I think that's factually accurate. Um, he did not uh, develop the the theorist, but to say that his role, I, I think that yeah, it's important to keep in mind that he was working with Leslie. He was the first person in his you know sort of demographic to go try and do these things, and the fact that he didn't make a, a sense of it in the most parsimonious, you know, clean cut, uh, unified way, uh, I think uh, is, is a product of that as well as, 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 as who he was. And that was the advantage Darwin had is that now this wasn't the first time someone was going out there. He actually had all this previous precedent to work with and, and start to put together. Uh, and yeah, so, yeah. yeah, I think I agree with you that I'm more attracted to the, the, the Darwin thing, but I think if you, it, uh, in a in a systematic investigation of 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 the the overall trends of science, I, I have a feeling that um, we would consistently see, perhaps a couple significant exceptions excluded, that this sort of trend holds, where the person, the first person out there, doesn't understand everything she's seeing, 
it's the person who comes afterwards who has the advantage of, of also knowing what that first person saw. And so I, I, I feel like that's a little bit more charitable uh, than just saying uh, he was a yeah. stamp collector. Yeah, I guess he created the groundwork that then others used. I mean, you know, that's also what, you know, these chapters that we didn't like, that's also part of that, right? He laid the groundwork for lots and lots of different things that influenced the way we view nature today. There is actually, whilst we're talking about this, like larger things, there's one thing I realized well, when I, like whilst reading the third part, is that it seemed to me that in a way, this book to me seems a bit like Humboldt's work. I don't know to what extent this is intentional per se, but it seemed to me because this book also, you know, as we, as you kind of also discussed, we don't really, I mean, we do get an idea of Humboldt and we do get an idea of what he did. But it's all fairly big picture. These are the way things are connected. And you don't really, I don't know. I felt like it also left me slightly without, without this kind of final punch of here's, you know, science, a big theory, or here's this big insight into him as a person or the science he did or something like that. It seemed to me, I don't know, at some point I was just struck that there seemed to be a bit of a parallel between the way Humboldt wrote science and the way this book was written. Yeah, don't know whether that's whether you agree with that, but I agree with that. And the way you know you you characterized Wolf in terms of uh, you know her professional discipline, which is as a historian, which I I have not done a ton of research about her, but just going off of what I what I have seen about her, and the way that I would characterize her is as a nature writer. That is the thing that like mm-hmm. that to me is why the book is called Invention of Nature yeah. is the reason she loves Humboldt is because she found someone who was sympathetic to, uh, you know, who, who, who had like, you know, in a sense, architected this 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 view of nature that she currently holds. And I think, again, I haven't read all of her other stuff, but if you think if you look towards the other kinds of things she's written, uh, I don't have a list in front of me, unfortunately, but uh they revolve around this consternation. That's clearly what she was getting out of this, you know, uh, diving into that was that was what's what what connected the topics and I think where we derived the title from and 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 that sort of stuff. And so, uh, no, she's not a scientist in the uh, traditional sense, or at least if she had training in that, it's not really her her primary objective anymore. And certainly, she's interested in historical phenomena. But I think ultimately, the thing that speaks to her is this conception of, of of what nature is and that sort of stuff, which is why we get this refrain over and over and over again about the interconnectedness of, of nature, is that's clearly what seems to be speaking to her from, from, from that perspective. And how she also quoted, I can't remember which passages came up with off the top of my head, but um, how Humboldt basically, I think this was in the um, the book on views of nature, Mm-hmm. Um, the, yeah, here's, here's the quote. It, she claims he created this new genre of nature writing, combined lively prose and rich landscapes, uh, uh, descriptions with scientific observation in a blueprint for much of nature writing today. And that clearly seems to be the sort of idiom that she's working in today and what she, uh, at a, you know, sort of deep seated level is, is, is contextualizing her own work in, um, yeah, which is fair. That's uh, and that's probably not the thing that you and I personally are most interested in. And yeah. I think that potentially goes away towards explaining the discourse. Like when you look at the back of the book and you see inspired, stupendous, luminous, arresting, thrilling, gripping. 
I probably wouldn't use the majority of those words myself to describe this uh, thing. And, and, I, and uh, I think maybe the extent to which there's a di discord between what you and I would have liked to have gotten out of this and what the author gave us to, to go with uh, and what certainly it seems that lots of other people did get out of this book because it did win awards and lots of people reviewed it well and, and evidently it sold lots of copies and, and that sort of stuff is that, yeah, uh, she she's operating in this nature writing discipline idiom genre whatever you want to call it which is probably not the one that is most likely to speak to to you and me yeah that's probably fair yeah i mean it, it's i guess we didn't read the title carefully enough but focus too much on the adventures of alexander von humboldt the lost hero of science yeah yeah i mean i think yeah that's that's i guess what i mentioned at the beginning i think the once you actually read the entire book and then read the title again, you go, oh, I see. <laughs> That's not what I expected, yeah. But anyway, fuck yeah. that. Let's talk about talking to science. Exactly. Um, so, okay, so I, I have, uh, this is kind of, I think, my summary. I wrote a little thing here. Uh, this is sort of my summary of what I was most enticed by in the story of Humboldt mm -hmm. as Wolf told it. And, you know, as much as we've given given her criticism, she, did, she, she created a very readable... Uh, uh, oh, sorry. Actually, when like, I when I well, I wrote down a, my last point about her book being similar to Humboldt's is that um, actually, so I, I only read the first half uh, or described the first part. The second half was that, like Humboldt, she creates a lot of a lot of excitement around the topic and makes it seem really cool. That's the, that's the part I left out. Yeah, it was. I didn't even mean it to be critical in that sense. I think in the sense that it describes the big picture and makes it seem really fascinating. And you know, I I'm probably going to read a book by Humboldt now because of this yeah um yeah, yeah. so so yeah that's just an important no, part of it and part. i and i think it's it's uh you don't want to underestimate the value of of that of creating yeah. a, a a biography of you know a dude especially living around 1800 and everything that pulls you through all the way um and with maybe the exception of the last couple of chapters <laughs> yeah. which didn't quite pull us through uh, uh quite as strongly towards the end That's still it's 300 pages and it's it's a nicely it that it's a nicely done biography so yeah yep, definitely it. and um but anyways this this is what i this is the thing that like stands out to me most about the story of humble and sort of connecting it to the interests that i think you and i most share and um it's basically <sighs> But it's similar to what we've been talking about, Humboldt's romantic, all-encompassing approach to science, which may or may not even, in your opinion, be science. <laughs> um, but basically, uh, you see throughout the book, Humboldt, Goethe, their contemporaries, all these guys were responding against the sort of like ultra-rational Enlightenment approach of Newton, as we were uh, just talking about, and, and others like that. And... You know, in line with what we're talking about, Newton, the core of what the Enlightenment endeavor was, was to find these overarching unified theories, singular equations that applied everywhere and everyone. And Humboldt said, no, the world is, it's, it's too uh, heterogeneous. And you have to go out there and you have to appreciate it in all its idiosyncratic glory. Look at the individual instances of what's going on and not just like, oh, here's what it looks like in my backyard. Therefore, uh, it applies everywhere. And uh, so he really took individual cases as individual cases. And, you know, hardcore empirical science, which is, I think, the kind of thing 
um, that that you and perhaps even myself find find very appealing. Uh, it, it's not the full story, according to Humble. So it, uh, in order to observe all there is to observe, you have to actually have the eye of the poet as well, to take a humanistic approach as well as an empirical one. And so here's my here's my kind of hot take uh, on this, is that I'd like to think, and this is probably a hope, but you might as well call it a prediction, uh, okay. that we're going to see a kind of reemergence of this of this romantic approach in psychology and cognitive science in the coming years. And so the second half of the 20th century, the, the sort of paradigm that especially cognitive science and, and certainly to some extent psychology as well has been working in for the past, let's call it 70 years or whatever, is really an age of hyper-rationalism. Um, this is typified by like mind is computer metaphor and, and, and that sort of stuff. And, and really this like, okay, uh, we've got that. And then also, you know, like just another similar, similarly motivated thing. All psych experiments having been run on undergraduates comes from basically that assumption. If people are everywhere the same, if the mind is essentially the same kind of thing, this this little computer unifi- that can be described by uh, unified theory potentially, then uh, you don't really have to go there's not it's not theoretically clear why you'd have to go out there and um uh you know yeah only if there's some sort of interaction effect between culture and your phenomenon yeah and so my my sort of claim here is that you know i think over the last 10 years we've started to see the fallout of this hyper rationalist uh approach and we call it by the sort of individual crises like replication crisis theory crisis generalizability crisis whatever your favorite one is uh, and perhaps individually, they are these sort of, you know, crises and everything. But I think collectively, they point towards an overall system failure, or at least, you know, if, if not a failure, then at least a, a major fault. And so one way to respond to this fault would be to go deeper into rationalism, to double down and assume that if we just do replication right, and we get statistics locked down, and we've got pre-registration and this and that, and, you know, more sophisticated modeling and everything that eventually we're going to get the psychology and the cognitive science that we want. Um, but personally, I don't think so. Uh, I think instead uh, we're eventually going to have to find that, that what satisfies us is something closer to what Humboldt did, an on-the-ground, romantic, humanistically driven approach that seeks to contextualize humans in their natural environment rather than the sterile confines of the laboratory. And so that is... Again, somewhere between a hope, a prediction, a feeling that I, you know, kind of have identified within in myself and, and what I see in, you know, what Humboldt was trying to do in being like, well, great, we have this, we've exhausted this approach of this Newtonian hyper-rationalism. Uh, what do we get by responding against that? And I think we're going to see more of that over the coming years in psychology of something that looks like a re- uh, resurgence of this kind of romantic all-encompassing approach to science, particularly in our fields of interest, psychology, cognitive science. Do you know, I mean, I know there's this whole research area of humanistic psychology, right, which I know nothing about. Do you know anything about this? I feel like it used to be more popular a few decades ago, but yeah, I don't know. Yeah, uh, I mean, certainly uh, there is not one that counterpoint to what I'm saying is that really throughout uh, all of the 20th century, there have been these really strong humanistic attempts to uh, do a a humanistic version of psychology, the signal version of it being Freud. Uh, So that was 
really what Freud was 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 trying to do was to create this ultimate humanistic psychology based not on empirical evidence, which we of course make fun of him for today, um, per se, but uh, like uh, on interpretation and, and hermeneutics and this different humanistic approach. And then in the second half of the twentieth century, kind of had this post Freudian yeah, existential, what was, that's what I heard of, yeah. uh, hu- humanistic uh, psychology and everything. And uh, uh, yeah, so I think. I guess my question is more, I don't really know what that's, I know the word and it sounds like that, but I don't really know what's, what it is. That's kind of my question. Suffice to say that there are uh, any versions of this that I'm sure I, I do know of a couple, and I'm sure there's plenty that I don't know of. Any versions of this very, very fringe, you know, sort of like ways of doing psychology. And yes, it's glorious that Scott Barry Kaufman calls himself a humanistic psychologist uh, and, and, and everything like that. And I think that is n- not unrepresentative of the kind of thing that I that I uh, that I'm talking about. That yes, here's someone who's trying to take seriously, um, you know, how do we actually apply the empirical, legitimate, scientific stuff we know to the actual lived experience of our own lives? Which I think what he means when he says humanistic psychologist that may or may not he's a you know podcast contemporary, uh, so it may or may not be one of the, the people you have in mind. Uh, I mean, no, I mean, I knew of his podcast, but I, I, I just heard like, yeah, that in the whatever 60s, 70s, there was this humanistic psychology. But yeah, that's basically literally all I knew about it. <laughs> so. um, at any rate, um, and, and people, people really like that. The, the Viktor Frankl logotherapy, humanistic psychology uh, kind of version of, it, I think is the most, the one that has received the most mainstream traction. And like, you know, I ask people all the time on my podcast, like, what are the books that most uh, influence you? And for the kind of people that I talk to, there's two of them. One is Good Lesher Bach, uh, which, like, especially for a generation of, of artificial intelligence and computational neuroscientists, basically, like, inspired every single goddamn one of them to pursue Basically that our world. parents' generation, right? Yeah, and, and definitely lots of people after that. But there was definitely a generation where it was like, this, like, set the tone for it. So anyway, there's that. And then the other one is, is Man's Search for Meeting, Viktor Frankl, hmm. uh, which basically he calls it existential uh you know psychology but it's basically all these all these kind of things that i think are sort of uh part and parcel like like this this is this is the signal the second half of the 20th century contribution to to this kind of endeavor but anyway i think we're going to see that become a more mainstream thing and you know like joe henrik's book uh like the the weirdest people in the world or whatever, I have yeah, a yeah. copy sitting over there. That, you know, is the kind of thing that's going to make people start thinking about, okay, well, all of my research has been done on MTurk workers, psychology undergraduates, that sort of thing. And now we've got people really start to make these forceful arguments uh, about how limiting to, uh, you know, convenient samples of, of people to study for, for complex, deep-seated psychological and cognitive phenomena uh, that's not going to get us there. And I think at some point, one of the things that is going to resonate with people is something like what Humboldt did, doing this big, ambitious, newsworthy, very kind of splashy um, adventure that you know people are going to look at and say, yes, this is actually going out there into the world and applying the previously sterile and, and whatever. 
And people are going to look at them and be like, that's not fucking science. And they're going to be right. Um, but I think that, that this sort of uh, give and take, and then it's going to inspire the next wave of, of a hyper-rationalist, you know, better theories uh, and, and, and that sort of stuff. But that, that if I had to try and anticipate the broad strokes of what psychology is going to look like over the next, you know, 50 years, it's going to be very similar to um, the kind of thing that we've been talking about in the romantic you know, science of, of Humboldt as a response to the Enlightenment rationalism of, of Newton, and then followed by ultimately much better theories of um, the the more sophisticated, uh, in this case, in Humboldt and Darwin's case, biological world, and in our case, the, the psychological world. Yeah, I think I, I think in general I agree, and then I mean I, I think I'd frame it slightly more positive. I think it's just you know you have to go through the lab based period to you know do things precisely and. I think there's definitely going to be a lot, much more in trying to get, you know, I mean, that's the whole thing where people like try and use wearables or like Facebook data or whatever, right? Where people are trying to like, yeah, limited by the data that they can get and they're trying to make uh, it more about what people actually do rather than sitting a few people in a lab. But yeah, I, I think in principle, I, I agree with most of what you said. It also sounds like I'm not going <laughs> to, uh, um, uh, how should we say? It, it also sounds like that that large what you suggested that someone has to go out there and um and anyway I, I don't know exactly how to phrase this now but it sounded like you had someone in mind who might be interested in doing that <laughs> and that person might be you <laughs> i don't know you don't have to confirm or deny this <laughs> I I think you're probably you're probably right about that. Um, I think you're very much right about that. No, I mean I, the reason you picked me out for this book is because you knew I'd be sympathetic to this character um, who his conception exactly. of how how knowledge should be acquired is by going out through these things. And Humboldt's certainly not the first person looking like oh this is really cool. Um, it's the reason why I'm obsessed with anthropologists because this is the whole premise of their their thing is uh, at least back in back in the day anthropology is a little bit different now um but you know like oh i have to go out there somewhere where it's going to resemble this you know sort of big indiana jones style adventure and that's how i am going to get the knowledge that i need and uh so yeah it's definitely something that's overall is something that interests me very much um i'd like to think that uh I'm better suited to that kind of thing than, than the laboratory work, if for another reason that I'm just not very good at the laboratory work. <laughs> um, and so, uh, you know, by process of elimination, hopefully there's there's something there. Um, and, uh, you know, ultimately, I probably would be. <laughs> I'm probably not good enough as a scientist to uh, to uh, to do the actual you know, work of it, like you're saying, and probably would, you know, in all honesty, aspire to be more like the humble thing. It was like, well, you do a little bit of work. You get the... Uh, he did, he did <laughs> his five years of data collection. <laughs> exactly. You do the you do the PhDs worth of work, and then you sit there talking about it for the rest of the time. In all honesty, yeah, I think that that, that is, uh, that's definitely something that, you know, for better or for worse, that's the kind of thing that... Um, I don't know if I'm if I'm cut out to do it, but certainly there's you know I, I'm drawn to that in a certain way. Well, I, I and, certainly uh, hope that in like in 50 years or whatever there'll be a, a biography written about you, and I'll read it and go, "That's not really science, though, is it?" <laughs> be like, <laughs> at the end of the day, we'll all we can all agree on that. Whatever I'm going to do, big or small, traveler at home, it's probably not going to be very good science, whatever it is. But if it's entertaining, uh, then sure. yeah. 
but that's yeah exactly <laughs> no i uh I, and I, and I I can't disagree with it. Even having said all that, I can't disagree with any of your characterizations of that um, of that way about going going about doing things. Yeah. Uh, do you have any major points about Humboldt? I'm not even sure. I have. I mean, I, I still have those articles. They're kind of interesting. I'm definitely going to put them in the description. I mean, one was kind of interesting. There's these two guys. I don't know how to pronounce his name he's spanish so Juli pausas uh, and william bond they wrote this like small review article about homeworld and the reinvention of nature i mean what's in i mean i think this is kind of a fairly minor point in that they say like yeah what he did is really cool and everything but like you know obviously he missed out some stuff um and also it's the the general um i so it's maybe a slightly nuanced point here to make Obviously, they don't say that deforestation is good, but just because deforestation is bad, it doesn't mean it's good to put trees everywhere. And um, so apparently there's been a few, you know, they're not criticizing Humboldt. This is stuff that came out in the last 20 years or something. But, you know, if you put lots of trees there, you know, often you have a vegetation that was specifically, everything is adapted to that. And if you just put trees there, it's not necessarily a good idea. Apparently, it also makes water, like rivers flow a lot less fast so a lot slower when you put lots of trees around it whatever um so some of the stuff he said wasn't that correct um but it's a fairly minor point in the sense that yeah i mean someone who did science or not 200 years ago uh, is not gonna have the complete picture but it was still kind of interesting and they seem to do interesting stuff about fire as an evolutionary adaptive force which i never thought about um but you know some stuff burns more easily than others some areas burn more easily than others and that affects the life that develops there. I never thought about that, but yeah, once you put it like that, it's like, yeah, of course. <laughs> yeah. So I think those are like, um, I don't know. I have one minor actually just about cosmos, just because I read, you know, just the very beginning of the introduction. It's kind of interesting to me the way he wrote because, you know, I mean, I guess the parts of this was, when was this written? Like 1840s, something like that, right? Something around that, that time. Right. And, um, you know, I guess that was when people wrote these, especially in German, always more elaborate, longer sentences with more subclauses and that kind of thing. And he definitely does that. But I think he does it in a, I was surprised how well or how poetic he writes. Like the first sentence translates more or less, oh God, I'm not a professional translator, but I'll try. Um, the first sentence basically translates to, um, at the eve of a much moved life, I, hand over this work to the German public. Um, so, and the, the picture of this work, um, took me almost, oh no, sorry. The picture of this work hovered in front of my soul for almost half a century or something like that. <laughs> and it, but it, it's very, it's very readable though. It's not, you know, I'm in principle not a huge fan of this kind of writing. Um, I think I do like it quite straightforward and to the point. But it's very readable. And one word that really caught my attention, not only because it's here, but because it's also in the like introduction or whatever to personal narrative or something like that, is the word Schüchternheit. Um, because he, in both cases, Schüchternheit, so Schüchtern is, is a kind of shy timidness when you're kind of afraid of being like judged or whatever. And that's how he starts off in each first paragraph of saying like, 
I timidly present you this work. <laughs> As a sort of like, please don't hurt me after I give you this book. And that's just not something I expected. Um, after you hear that he was so, he seemed like such a confident guy, it seemed to me. But then he always said, maybe this. he anticipated 200 years later, people would be sitting there and be like, this isn't science. Well, he also, the, the fun thing in this one is, again, this is a long and convoluted sentence and I can translate it, but he basically says like, yeah, I know I've been putting off publishing this book. And usually when that happens, people trash the book when it, you know, when they've been waiting for like five years extra for work, people trash it. Please don't do this. That's basically what he's saying. <laughs> But yeah, I definitely want to read this book though at some point. Yeah, but those are basically the the last smaller points I had. Yeah, I don't know whether you have anything anything left. No, I think we we covered it all. I think we we're pretty correct about our discussion of the overarching themes in the uh, sort of first the first episode. Um, so interconnectedness of nature that was there through the whole thing, yeah. um, and then also. Some of the stuff that we've been talking about in terms of the romantic approach to, to science and everything we've discussed in terms of is it stamp collecting, is it physics, is it this holistic thing, are you really getting anything out of it, that, that, that sort of thing, and how that's representative of the, the period that, that he was in and what other people were interested in at the time and how it dovetailed with um, not only Goethe but presumably you know, other romantic figures and everything. And uh, yeah, I think for both of us, it sounds like there were parts we liked, parts we didn't like about the biography itself. Found Humboldt an interesting character, probably not at the level of a Darwin or Newton, but still worth reading about and considering. And then I think um, this this made me excited to read his stuff, um, as well as uh, a few adjacent works. Like there is this, I think it was right before the, the Thoreau chapter, the end of the cosmos chapter. Mm-hmm. She mentioned Edgar Allan Poe's 100-page prose poem called Eureka, which is basically his response to um, cosmos and everything like that. Super excited to read that, and um, uh, you know, a couple other works like that. Yeah, definitely, definitely gave me a uh, an appreciation for this period, which was for the most part something that I did not know very much about going in and so i really appreciated this insight into it through the the person of humble and it made me excited to to think like okay yeah i want to learn more about this period what these people were up to especially for the aforementioned reason um that cody's argument is uh our you know the the next the coming period is going to look more like this period and ben's uh you know <laughs> speculation uh, that Cody sees him, fancies himself as you know uh, being a, being a part of that. Uh, there's there's a connection between that. Now I'm imagining uh, you so, just reading this, going, "Oh my god, I could be the next Homeworld, the Homeworld of yeah. the mind." <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I, uh, yeah, I think I agree with yeah, your summary. So. I think it was the same for me. I liked it. You know, obviously, you're not going to like everything in a long book, um, but overall, I thought it was pretty cool. Um, yeah, I'm definitely gonna. I'm probably gonna start with the shorter ones because Cosmos is like uh, even the first one is like 400 pages or something, right? That's like one book one out of five. Yeah. Um, book two sounds really cool. It's about the mind. Yeah, exactly. That's really interesting. That one sounds awesome. That I'm one sounds slightly super afraid cool. it's going to be completely wrong, like just like weird or something. <laughs> like we go like, I, yeah. Uh, it didn't really yeah. feature into his into the the beginning part of the book that he was interested in in that sort of stuff. Yeah. Um, because you know, as we sort of discussed about. Andrea Wolf's interest in nature 
And uh, so, yeah, I'd be I'd be very curious to see what, what Humboldt has to say about that and and whether there's anything, you know, of, of worthy of, of deeper consideration in that. OK, cool. Anyway, Ben, I want to say thank you for in- inviting me, and, and this was super fun to do. Well, I would you. not have paid this close attention to to this book if, if not doing it in this format. So I got a lot out of it, uh, and it was really fun to do. And um, yeah, I appreciate you inviting me to do it. And it was a very thoughtful suggestion, and I think you were dead on. But uh, <laughs> I don't, I don't think I would claim to to be the next Humboldt by any stretch of the imagination. But he's certainly a figure that I felt myself in, in quite a bit of sympathy with, and and. Uh, definitely appreciated what he was trying to do in a lot of ways. And uh, yeah, uh, thanks for having me on. And if people want to follow my stuff, they can do it uh, at my newsletter, codycommerce.substack.com, which is where I'm doing this sort of travel by psychology, um, you know, uh, in- integration here. And that that's the kind of writing and, and stuff that I'm trying to do. And then also, of course, my, my podcast, Cognitive Revolution. Yeah, and I'll so, put those in the description. Yeah, well, thank you then for doing it. Um, yeah, I always, again, I've, there's another third book I've done for this. And yeah, the, the amount of detail you, with which I read this book is so much higher than usual. Um, yeah. And then maybe, uh, if anyone's still listening after three hours, thank you. <laughs> I don't know why, but thank you. Um, and yeah, so I guess as I, as I uh, mentioned in the first one, there's a, there's a chance that's not too low that at some point I'm going to do the, a Goethe biography. That's supposed to be very good. Um, and yeah, I think, I, I mean, this was actually the first nonfiction I've done for this, right? The other two were fiction both. And it's, I mean, it's fun how it's such a different discussion. Maybe in part also because you took a, I think with the other two, we were maybe less prepared, you could say, but um, more of a kind of just chatting about it. Um, whereas now we had a much more topical discussion, which was really cool. But so I definitely want to have more kind of science books and those kind of things in here also that... Um, address similar topics but that's we'll see what i'll do next yeah anyway awesome thanks for listening cool thanks for joining <laughs>